The gathering, of course, in which we are currently involved, the worship services, are certainly so wonderful, beautiful, and they are things that are spoken of so richly and highly in the Word of God. And how honored we are to be able to t- today to express to the God of heaven our heartfelt adoration and praise. You may notice in light of the title of the lesson today, we'll be directing our attention to one of the first elements in the Sermon on the Mount. Could I invite you to turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, and we will give some thought to verse number 9 of that chapter. Among the Beatitudes, Jesus said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And amongst the other observations that the Lord made, these great blessings that have through the years, of course, meant so much to so many and have placed some tremendous marching orders for all of us to ensure that we are characterized by these descriptions. You may notice again some of the earlier ones that have even gone before that one. Verse 3, to be poor in spirit. Verse 4, to be those that mourn. Verse 5, to be those that are meek, and so on throughout the listing of these so-called Beatitudes. But today, why don't we devote the fullness of our consideration this morning to blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You and I are taught in Revelation 14, 4, that we need to follow the Master whithersoever He goeth. And yet, as Jesus gave us this teaching, remember, He was early in His earthly ministry, And yet He placed a tremendous requirement on peacemaking. What did He mean by this? And what are some rules or at least some guidelines the Word of God might present to us that might make you and me better peacemakers? Surely we often understand the place of tension and the place of division, the place of strife, the place of oppression, the place of opposition. And quite often the role of a peacemaker is such a fantastic role to bring people together and to encourage a statement in peace where formerly there was division and heartache. As the Lord made this statement before us, you might close that slide by noting that verse 16 of this same chapter will urge us to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. One of the things I might suggest that can be a tremendous matter for each of us is if we can serve in that role as a peacemaker, quite often others will take note because that's not common. Quite often our world seems to relish in division and controversy. And yet those that love the Lord, though they stand for truth when possible, they strive to make peace with all men. The first part of this lesson today will invite us to at least define somewhat carefully what we mean by the word peace. My intent for this slide is to do that very thing. By definition, peace has reference to a state of tranquility or that which is of quietness. It is a freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts. And it also includes a harmony in personal relations. I say all of those particulars because, depending on the context, you might find one or more with a little bit more significance. But surely it's fair to say that peace is something that our world knows a great deal about, at least in some ways. Governments often desire it. States desire it. Families desire it. Religions want it. 
Peace is something that often you hear folks say, what more than anything else do you want? Peace among men. Because isn't it true division is so divisive? Maybe that goes without saying. But it causes heartache and sleeplessness and troubled spirits. The word peace occurs very often in the Bible. I've asked you to note something about the wording. 450 times that word will occur, or some form of it, in the King James translation of the Bible. In fact, there's 105 occurrences of that Greek word that's translated peace in the writings of Paul alone. Isn't it ironic? Here's a man who so often was on the receiving end of the opposition from men, and yet he could preach so often. He could teach so frequently about peace. Doesn't that remind us that apparently Paul had an inward peace that passed all understanding? Philippians 4, 7. He had a peace, you see, that went beyond the troubled characteristics that this world so often foisted upon him. No wonder with that said. The bottom points on that slide are simply going to be these very brief observations. When there is no peace, that means you have the opposite of it, which is stress. And who among us likes that? And when there's no peace, you have tension. And who among us prefers that? And when you have no peace, you have troubled spirits. And who among us would prefer that? And whether that's occurring in the family, whether it's occurring in the church, whether it's occurring at the workplace, it is really a hurtful thing. How many of us perhaps have had to come home from work someday, and that particular day has been a day wherein tensions were high, so high you could proverbially cut it with a knife because there was no peace. And who among us has not had other circumstances in a family wherein, tragically and sadly, peace has not been in existence because troubled matters have arisen? Well, to say all of that is to say, why don't we let Jesus and the other gospel writers tell us a little bit about peacemaking. And so, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the children of God. Don't you find it a bit intriguing that as each of these beatitudes was given, there was a particular reward attached to it. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse number 3 says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But when you arrive at this one, peacemaking is attached, as you can see in verse 9, to being called the child of God. It would seem as if one of the things that's so rich and special about being a person devoted to the things of God is that you love peace so that you will make effort to acquire it and encourage it, not only in your life, but also in those of others. It might well be in light of that, I've asked you to note several verses at the bottom of that slide, wherein the concept of peacemaking is at least discussed in a general way. Romans 14, 19, for example, Paul set before the church in Rome the reality of the fact that as children of God, you will be those that seek and desire peace. And that will be a part of your livelihood and your existence in the church at Rome. The next slide will develop some of these thoughts by way of some observations. I've selected just a few, but I think that we can at least discuss the majority of the Bible's points on peacemaking in just a handful of, of, of uh, observations that I will invite you to note. 
First of all, what about the source of peace? If you and I are to be those who are peacemakers, surely it's critical to know where do we go then as the source of our information to encourage peacemaking. How do we do it? The Word of God is pretty clear on this. Many, I suppose, in our world would encourage peacemaking on the basis of physical blessings. Perhaps many in the United States would approach it that way, but you and I understand our interest is what saith the Scripture. In the words of Romans 4 verse 3, what does the Bible say about being a peacemaker? What is the source? The source is without doubt. Given in some of the verses, you will note at the top of that slide. Jesus said in John 14, 17, My peace I leave with you. The Lord thus affirmed that though He Himself lived in the life and times wherein He too was on the receiving end of much hatred, the receiving end of much oppression and opposition, He said, My peace, He had it, and that He would very easily bequeath it to those who would desire it. The source of peace is going to rest with Jesus Christ. It will invariably rest with Him. And may I at least offer this thought. I realize there are many religions upon the earth today, and you might well think about those who claim some centrality to the city of Jerusalem. The Jews hold that city as sacred. Christians hold it very specially. And even the Muslims do as well. There will never be peace among the human family apart from Jesus Christ. You can refer to Muhammad all you want to. You can neglect Jesus as the Savior all you want to, but if you do, you'll never have peace. Not in a worldwide character and not personally with God either. Jesus is the source and the centerpiece. He would say it this way in John 16 verse 33, In the world you shall have tribulation. Now that's about as definitive a statement as you and I shall ever find. The world will only bring you that which is tribulation and discussion in light of the lack of peacefulness. But He said, My peace I leave with you. Jesus thus made statement that to those apostles, and we all know what they were about to witness the next day. They were going to see Him nailed to a cross. They were going to witness Him ridiculed, reviled, and railed upon in such dramatic ways. And yet, the previous night He told them, the world may give you tribulation, but I'll bring you peace. That peace is such a blessedness even to this day, isn't it? To know it, to live in accordance to it, to appreciate the worth that it has. You might note one final passage in Romans, or rather Philippians 4, 7, the one we noted earlier. This kind of peace, you see, doesn't only rest with the original apostles. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, told them, that they too could have it. The peace of God that passes all understanding, listen to Him, shall keep your hearts. He was talking to Philippian people. He was talking to Christians like you and me. We can have that kind of peace. And once we have it, we then have the means whereby we can share it with others and help them see by the example of our life and the things that are true of the way we conduct ourselves, how special, how meaningful that peace can be. Several other verses to which I might call your attention. In Isaiah 9 verse 6, even in the Old Testament, it was prophesied as Isaiah in fact made statements about the coming Christ 
Remember, Jesus wasn't going to be born upon this planet for another 850 years from the times of the writing of Isaiah. And yet, Isaiah could list some of the designations by which he would be called the mighty God among them. But the one for our emphasis today, he would be called the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus. He would be the Prince of Peace. Doesn't that remind us along the same line that it was prophesied in Genesis 49? Even as Jacob was approaching his deathbed, and the final words he would ever speak, in speaking to Judah, his fourth oldest son, he said that Shiloh shall come out of your loins. What does Shiloh mean? Bringer of peace. So Jacob prophesied well over a thousand years, almost two thousand years before Jesus was born, that He was going to be the bringer of peace. Oh, how blessed we are then to be a child of God, to know about that source. Second Chronicles 15.5 will close that observation by saying that apart from God there is no peace. It's just that simple. What about observation number two? The Word of God makes an attachment, a connection, if you will, in a very strong way between peace on the one hand and righteousness on the other. In other words, the way one behaves oneself, the kind of conduct that one chooses. To see some about that development, look at just a few of these verses. We might begin in Isaiah 57. The last two verses of that chapter will point out so very strongly, and you and I might listen well, as the writer Isaiah made these statements about peace on the one hand and wickedness on the other. So please note, he's talking about wickedness and he places it exactly opposite to peace. Can we not thus conclude a person who chooses to live in wickedness, who chooses a way of ungodliness, that person is living without the peace the Bible would endorse and the peace which the Word of God would so lovingly encourage in the lives of one and all. But yet if we choose to live apart from God, we can never have that peace. The waters that cast up mire and dirt, the writer would say, are such that there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. I pray each of us will never forget that passage because it ought to be a barrier. In essence, it ought to be a limiting consideration that always keeps us in the narrow way of faithfulness because once we stray from it, there is no peace. That's what Isaiah asserted. But to develop that thought even more thoroughly, Psalm 85 verse number 10 will say that without righteousness there is no peace. Now righteousness means living rightly. It means living as we ought to live according to the Bible. And if I choose to not live that way, regardless of what I may think or hope, I don't have peace because I am at odds with the God who made me. I am at odds with what His standard of authority and His standard of living is all about. I'm choosing to live very foolishly. For those reasons, we may close that to say in Ephesians 2.13, the whole reason Jesus came to this planet, the whole reason that He came is to make peace between us and God. And so if I choose not to abide in the peace that He offers, if I choose to live my own way, it's no wonder I don't have any peace. Now, I may give the pretense of having it, but we know well God's always right and He says I don't have it.
And he says, I'll never have it living that way. This connection between righteousness and peace then points that the nature of your life and mine is going to be a part of our effectiveness in peacemaking. We will never be those who encourage peace if our own life is filled with ungodliness. We may talk it, but the fact we don't walk according to that way will mean others will have very little interest in hearing what we have to say. Observation number three will thus lead us to think about the home, peace in the home. I suppose among the places in which we so lovingly desire there to be peace is in the house, in which there's peace in the family, between the parents and the children, between the children themselves, between the parents themselves. The harmony and the peace that exists there can truly, as many have often described it, be a foretaste of heaven. It can be a place wherein the propriety and authority is understood and respected and the behavior is such that each one strives to live as he or she should and that will make for peace. Let's develop some of those thoughts more carefully. I might begin by saying that we all understand there are many dysfunctional families in this regard. Families that do not have this peace. Families that in fact give the evidence of their being infighting and strife and tension. And sometimes there's even such an extremity of this that there's no communication at all. Maybe it is in that regard. We should well remember God's design for the family was not like that. It didn't include this kind of peacelessness. On that slide, notice in Proverbs 17, 1, how that the ancient writer could say that when there is the lack of peace in a house, how miserable it is. That kind of misery is again a very hurtful thing in many ways. It's echoed again in Proverbs eleven twenty nine, And finally in Proverbs 21, 9 may be lifted to its highest crescendo. But in all of those ways, when there is that lack of peace, even the wisdom of Solomon led him to say, how miserable. How unhealthy, how challenging such a situation can be. But yet, when there is the motivation of love, in the appearance and the existence of peace, how sweet it is in Colossians 3 verses 19 to 21. There we have a description of that father who behaves as he should and brings up his children in love as he should, making a household known for its peacefulness, and along the same line, the wife, also recognizing her place, is one who, in understanding of that point, behaves in submission to the husband, and all are moving in a way of godliness, knowing well the place of peace and harmony with God. That kind of peacefulness maybe leads to one final statement. In 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, Paul spoke about families in the first century some of whom did not enjoy the fullness of that peace. And doesn't that encourage upon each of us that we would do well to exert the effort required to ensure the kind of peacefulness that would make for a happy, healthy, and godly home? Are you and I working toward that goal? Are we striving on a daily basis to first make ourselves in harmony with the will of God and helping make sure that our children love the Lord that way so that they too will also know that peacefulness? 
A child who grows up in a home with the kind of peace the Bible encourages will seek to establish his or her own home also with that kind of peacefulness. And they'll not be satisfied to suddenly marry somebody that's going to have tension and strife and godlessness. The kind of harmony and peacefulness that comes with the Word of God is a very prevailing thing, isn't it? As you and I develop further this third point, let's go ahead and make applications with it to the fourth one. In the church, we all know how special the church is. The Lord shed His blood to buy it. It required the shedding of His blood at Calvary. As long as we keep that thought in mind, I suspect we'll always remember that the church then is so high and so highly regarded that we ought never do anything that would cause it to be less than what the Lord expects and demands of it. In Ephesians 5.27, it was purchased absolutely spotless. Now, we all know the Lord was perfect, and we aren't. We make our errors in judgment. We make our particular decisions on occasion that aren't as ideal as they ought to be. But it ought to be our goal in every way to make sure that the Lord is without spot. I'm sorry, that the church is without spot and without blemish, at least as far as we can make it, just as the Lord purchased it. In that description of Ephesians 5.27, we seemingly notice that that was the wording that Paul himself used. But notice how that stands opposite to the state of affairs in some congregations. I suspect we've each known of instances wherein congregations arrive at a point wherein there's division. Particular members won't speak to one another, and when they do, it's fussing and fighting. And quite often, there are those who won't even exit out of the same door. And there are those, of course, who ultimately have split or divided because of matters that had nothing to do with Scripture. It was expedient things, sometimes frivolous things. May I say that I would certainly hate to think I had to stand before the judgment bar of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who actually owns the church, Acts 20, 28, the one who actually is its foundation and head, 1 Corinthians 3, 11, 1 Colossians 1, 18, and to have to give an answer for my part in causing its division over something that was not scriptural over something that had nothing to do with what would be a matter connected to truth. And yet, that's going to be the issue that some will face. As far as matters in the church, isn't it true in light of what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 4-7, the church ought to be a haven of peace. It ought to be a place wherein we can leave the troubled character of the world and assemble with those of like precious faith and adore the God of heaven together. As we sing together, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, pray together, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, partake of the Lord's Supper together, 1 Corinthians 11, study the Word of God together, Acts 20, verses 7 and following, and give of our means together, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. All of that should be a blessed haven of tranquility, serenity, peacefulness, and harmony. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, to borrow the wording of Psalm 133, verse 1. The kind of unity thus endorsed to the Word of God 
is a unity that you can see on that slide is one that is so strongly encouraged and demanded in the Word of God. Paul often would say that the same message which I preached at some congregation, I had delivered at another one. There was a togetherness in the doctrine, a togetherness in their practice, a togetherness in their behavior. That kind of togetherness, we're so thankful, does exist in many congregations and among many congregations, and certainly we're delighted to play our part and encourage it, even in our congregation here at Pippin. But it's sad to say that we then can be an influence for unity and for peace among those who do not enjoy this like we do, and even in families who do not enjoy it. One of the last statements about that particular one would be the statement James made in James 3 verse 16. He said that where there is this unity, where there is this peacefulness, there is the blessing of God. We certainly can feel very special to appreciate that one of those blessings will be the matter of peacefulness and all the wonders that go with it. Now we come to the last part of the lesson. Perhaps some matters of practicality. We've studied some matters about the source of peace, peace in the home, peace in the church, and the nature of peacefulness in connection to righteousness, but maybe you and I should be ready to ask, how do I go about effectively trying to be a peacemaker? May we allow the Word of God to offer us a few words of helpfulness and a few tips of wisdom. First of all, the Word of God, as we've already learned, does encourage us along this line of being a peacemaker. The first thing would be we need to be students of the Word of God so that we know in any given situation what would be proper to say and the tone of voice or otherwise that might be the best to use to say it. It is entirely possible to say the right thing but say it in a wrong way. And so you often cause difficulty just doing it, that, doing it like that. So in 2 Peter 1 verse 5, "...add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge." That word virtue means moral excellence. It connects to righteousness. First, get your own life in order. As you do that, then, then you would be in a position to exert that influence of virtuosity and knowledge to those whom you might be able to influence. Didn't Jesus say it like this in Matthew 7? Before you attempt to cast a speck out of somebody else's eye, make sure to get the log out of your own. Again, get your own life in order first. Make sure things are right with you and the Lord. As we do that, what then should come next? What might then be? Some additional statements about peacemaking. First, never ever be guilty of gossip or tale-bearing. Now how often the Word of God encourages us? Because we understand so well, how often is it really the case that when that gossip is uttered, it will finally come back to the one about whom you were doing the talking. And once that person learns it, obviously there's a division between you and that person. You really said that about me? Why did you say that about me? Don't we understand? God says if we have an issue with somebody, go and talk to them alone first. Deal with the issue that way first. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following. But as far as gossip, Proverbs 26, verse 20 puts it like this. When there is no tail-bearing, 
In other words, when that has been put to rest, the fire will go out. All the tension will leave, you see, when people aren't guilty of gossip and when they aren't guilty of these other matters. Those so often will fan the flames of adversity and fan the flames of peacelessness and fan the flames of bad feelings. Going beyond even that, James perhaps gave us each some words of wisdom in James chapter 1. Be quick to hear, but be much slower to talk. Well, again, that's what the Word of God teaches. Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Quite often, we might well be guilty of talking before we have all the facts, talking before we have all the information, and as we talk that way, we thus give bad advice, and often hurtful advice, and advice that may in fact lead to division between individuals rather than peace. We would do well to listen carefully and then rightly consider what we've heard in light of our knowledge of the Word of God and then maybe we'd be in a position to offer some healthy counsel. Beyond that, may we not be a person of a contentious spirit. We've each known of people like that. People who are simply abrasive, people who are contentious. Seems like no matter what you say, somehow they get mad at you. Sometimes they take it the wrong way. Not everyone is out to get you and me. And so if we are of this contentious spirit, it puts us under the banner of Proverbs 26, 21. It makes us a person who then is just setting ourselves up then to lack peace. If we are not of that kind of a contentious spirit, we'd be much more apt in calmness and without emotional baggage to at least discuss and be ready to encourage peacefulness in the lives of others as well as ourselves. Esteem others better than yourself. The Word of God directly teaches this many times. Genesis 13, do not we not remember Abraham is a good example? He let Lot make the first choice. Pick where you want to go and then I'll go the other way. It is tragic that Lot chose such a poor choice, but he did. But at least on Abraham's part, he was ready to, in fact, make peace between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen by letting Lot make the first choice. As far as the New Testament, doesn't Paul teach it this way in Philippians 2.3? Esteem others better than yourselves. If we look upon others better than ourselves, I'll not selfishly demand my way when it comes to matters of expediency. And I'll be quick then to encourage peacefulness and harmony in cases where in selfishness I might offend others. Perhaps the next element would be this one. Seek reconciliation. Many instances are such that they do not involve what we would recognize as truth. Now we know the Word of God is not compromisable. We cannot compromise what God has plainly taught. Therefore... There's a firm boundary when it comes to those things. But there's a lot of other matters such that things are left to our decision. In all of those matters, may we appreciate when at all possible, live peaceably with men, Romans 12, 18. Strive then to be those who reconcile. We ought not desire to have grudges and desire to be at odds with others. There are times that due to the behavior of others, they're going to want it that way, but it's not our choice. Maybe nextly, intercede with love. 
We all know agape love is the critical thing that Jesus says should motivate what you and I do and how we do it. If we love the souls of men, and we love our fellow brothers and sisters, and we love our family, we will desire peacefulness, and we'll desire harmony. I chose the example of the book of Philemon. Here was a situation, a man who was a slave ran away from Philemon. Paul desired to make peace between those two. And so it was, he sent Onesimus back to Philemon, carrying the letter we call the book of Philemon, encouraging Philemon, you take him back. But you take him back, not merely as a slave, but as your brother in Christ. And based on that character, oh, how sweetly we can only imagine must have been Philemon's response. Maybe the last thing we'll say, when offenses arise... And others have recognized that point and said, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? We must be people of forgiveness. We're told if we won't forgive others, God won't forgive us. Matthew 6, verses 13 and 14. And surely that is a critical element in maintaining peacefulness. When others, upon recognition of where they stand, desire to make peace, may we desire it too and be quick like Jesus described in Matthew 18. In fact, did you notice what He taught Peter and others about the number? You may recall, if thy brother sinned against thee seven times, how many times should you forgive? Didn't the Lord say until 70 times seven? I'm persuaded He wasn't being literal. He was asserting that if the very same person offends you and says, will you forgive me, and then does it again, you ought to have a spirit willing to forgive even if they fall into this mistake more than once. Even if they in weakness commit it more than once against you. Doesn't that encourage us to be people who are forgiving? Aren't you thankful that God forgives us? How many times have you besought God to forgive you for something when you've had to ask Him for it before? But yet you fall into it again, and maybe you'll note here, we're encouraged to feel somewhat like that even when others approach us and ask us to forgive them. We've studied today several things about the text we've read in Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I hope each of us have been encouraged to love the thought of peace and to strive as much as is it the case in us to make that a reality. This final slide is merely a summary of some of the things that we have at least considered in brevity today. But this time, let's offer the invitation like this. If there's anyone in this assembly who's reached an age of knowing wrong from right and you are not at peace with God, please don't leave this building in that condition. Please don't continue as you are, for remember, there is no peace to those that are wicked. Isaiah 57, verses 20 and following. Today, it's the Lord who wants so much for you to be at peace with Him. And He wants to be at peace with you because He wants your life to be all it can be upon this earth and the only way that's any ways worthwhile in the life beyond this one. And He died to make that a reality. But He lets you decide if you want it too. If you've never obeyed the gospel... You need to have your sins remitted. It happens like this. Believe in the Lord as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. As you believe in Him, repent of your sins. 
Be convicted of the nature of them and turn aside from them. Don't think you can continue to live in them because that can't happen. We've already learned peace goes with righteousness. You can't live wickedly and hope to have any real peace. Once you do that, confess the Lord's name. Make that verbal statement that He is the Son of God and that you are going to live up to His standard as nearly as you can all the days of your life. Be baptized then for the remission of those sins. At that point, whatever they have been and whatever they then may be, they're gone. They're forgiven. They're remitted. They're held against you no more. Now, once you rise from that watery grave, you commence the Christian life. That's your spiritual birthday. At that point, live faithfully until death. When you make errors, when you make mistakes, if they're known in a public way, make it right. Simply make it right. If you've offended someone, approach them. Say you're sorry. Try to make peace with them. But all the while, it'll have to start with making peace with the Lord. Make confession of those errors. As you confess them, repent of them, God's promised to forgive them. And we'd be delighted today to make acknowledgement of that, even as we pray to God for that very reality. All of these things encourage us to love the thought of peacefulness. And God has told us how we can have it. Do you want it today? If you're not a faithful child of God and you want to, why don't you come while together we stand and sing?